Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, from the sidelines of the Air Warfare Symposium in Orlando, Florida. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Despite an unprecedented series of actions to punish Russia and its leaders for the unprovoked invasion of Ukraine, Vladimir Putin has only sharpened his attack on Europe's second largest country and made the campaign more brutal. But as sanctions bite, cracks are forming between Russia's elite and Putin, the country's second largest oil company, Luke Oil, yesterday called for an immediate end to hostilities. Other oligarchs have suggested the same. President Biden gave his first State of the Union address seeking to unite Americans as lawmakers remain divided over passing an appropriations measure that would avoid a devastating full year continuing resolution. Joining us today to discuss all this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, who is now affiliated with the Center for a New American Security, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS, which is also sponsoring our coverage from the Air Warfare Symposium here hosted by the Air Force Association. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Check out our Cavus Ships podcast hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime issues each week. And tune into the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful weekly look at all things space. Uh, everybody, thanks very much again for uh, joining us. Uh, appreciate it very much, especially you, Jim, joining us as, as you are uh, from Paris. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, Michael, you, know, you have been optimistic uh, for some time that despite bar, uh, bipartisan dickering, uh, we're going to have an appropriations measure by March uh, 11. After the current continuing resolution expires, now Democrats are calling for the costs associated with increased U.S. Uh, uh, personnel, uh, as well as operations in unit, uh, in Europe to deter Russia and support Ukraine uh, should come out of the Pentagon's top line rather uh, than a supplemental. Uh, what's going on? What does it mean? And how does it get fixed or, or not? And what happens then? I mean, is the worst case scenario of a full year CR actually on the table now? So uh, the, the process continues to move forward and there are different things that are holding it up. Uh, one of which is the fact that the president earlier this week proposed uh, $6.4 billion in, uh, in a Ukraine aid supplemental that would be attached to the omnibus. Uh, $2.9 billion of that would be for humanitarian and security needs uh, for Ukraine, and $3.5 billion would be for the uh, Department of Defense. Now, the Democrats uh, were arguing that the $2.9 billion for humanitarian needs for Ukraine would be uh, treated as emergency funds, but the $3.5 billion for DOD would have to come out of the defense top line that was been, has already been agreed to for 2022, which the Republicans uh, have uh, balked at. Now, um, Pelosi, uh, to her, in her great wisdom, came in and, and settled that and said that would be treated as, as emergency spending. But then two days later, the administration changed their request, and now they want $10 billion uh, in aid for Ukraine and $22.5 billion in, in COVID relief. So the Ukraine aid, which would be split almost evenly, about $4.8 billion of that 
would be for the Department of Defense to support U.S. troop deployments uh, into neighboring countries uh, to, back, to uh, back up NATO, as well as provide additional military equipment to Ukraine, and another $5 billion for economic and humanitarian assistance, mostly to State Department and, and a few other agencies. Uh, and that will be treated as emergency spending, and that should, that's an issue that now seems to be resolved. However, adding $22.5 billion for COVID relief is a problem. The Republicans are balking at that. They uh, maintain that the $1.9 trillion in COVID relief from the American Rescue Plan is still not all spent yet, and that we should not be spending any additional dollars on COVID relief. In addition, the Democrats want to include a provision in the omnibus that would rescind border wall funding that hasn't been spent yet, and the Republicans are saying that they don't want to vote for that either. Um, as you know, uh, funding runs out March 11th. Steny Hoyer, as of yesterday, the uh, House Majority Leader, is still saying that the House will plan to vote on an omnibus by next Tuesday. I'm starting to wonder whether they're going to hit that date or not. There is talk of a short-term CR to give them one more week uh, to not only wrap up these issues, but then also to put the text together uh, to write it. I do not believe we'll end up in a full-year CR. There is talk about that. I think our worst-case scenario is a, one more week of a short-term CR. Dove, uh, you've spent a lot of time uh, looking at these issues and having to live through them as a uh, comptroller. Uh, walk us through your sense on where we are and what it potentially means. Well, I, I think that Pelosi clearly uh, got the White House to realize that cutting the uh, defense, essentially cutting the defense budget uh, was not a very bright idea right now. Um, but this gambit of adding uh, money to uh, COVID relief um, seems to sort of hold everything we're doing for Ukraine as a hostage. And that's not very smart. The, the administration's already got a problem. They've got to explain why they're import, why they're agreeing that uh, we should continue to import 650,000 barrels a day from Russia. Uh, Congress is against that. The White House keeps pushing back. That's bad enough. But on top of that, to sort of play domestic politics when you're saying we want to really help Ukraine, it just doesn't fly. And uh, it, they're, they're boxing themselves into a very, very bad corner. I mean, the truth of the matter is with the, with the uh, oil imports, I mean, if, if this is so important to the world, then really paying another dollar at the gas station is such a big deal. It's not going to go on forever. And so you've got to wonder what's going on in some of the brains of those people in the White House, quite frankly, whether it comes to the budget or it comes to the oil. I want to shift uh, briefly to the State of the Union before we get uh, to uh, Russia and uh, Ukraine. Um, you know, you guys have heard uh, a couple of these speeches uh, over the decades. Uh, I think it's uh, safe to say. Michael, what was uh, the view from the Hill on it, right? I mean, uh, folks said that, uh, you know, view, you know, depending on what party you talk to, uh, you got a sense that he was too partisan. If you talk to Republicans, uh, you know, you certainly get that message. You talk to Democrats. I mean, there's some Democrats who are frustrated uh, with the president because he was sort of moving more to the middle. Um, there was brief unity uh, on the Ukraine uh, comments, but Republicans have been pounding the administration, even though we on this program and many other people would say that the administration has handled this situation, um, you know, well. Uh, what, what were some of the takeaways you were getting from lawmakers, Michael? So uh, I think you're right. I mean, there was some unity around uh, the Ukrainian message. I mean, he did spend the, the first 12 minutes of his State of the Union address on Ukraine, uh, and he made a very strong reaffirmation of NATO, which I think was received very well. 
Um, and I think you see, you know, Republican criticism dying down on that point. But one thing he didn't do is explain uh, to the American people why this conflict is important to us and why we should care about it, and why it's a threat to American security. So that's something that was definitely missing. And he also, I think he missed the opportunity to that while he was up there to press for the passage of the, the omnibus appropriations bill that Congress was supposed to take up, you know, a week later after his address. Um, you're right. Look, Republicans are going to be critical, but there was some surprise how critical some of the Democrats were uh, from both sides. I mean, David Axelrod, who is you know no no uh, liberal, who was uh, Obama's senior political advisor, sent out a tweet, you know, saying it's hard to avoid making the State of the Union speech sound like a laundry list. Uh, the tide didn't turn tonight, um, and then he got um, you know uh, critique from you know, the, the squad, you know, people like Cory Bush, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez were very critical of him. And so it was very surprising too, is that Rashida Tlaib, who is a Democrat, actually gave her own response to the State of the Union address to a, a president who's in her own party. And I actually asked the Democratic congressman, I was like, why is Rashida Tlaib giving a response to the State of the Union address? And he looked at me and said, because we like to lose. Uh, so, and also, you know, Biden did spend a lot of time talking about things that he did not accomplish, and many of which were components of what used to be called, you know, build back better. But surprisingly, uh, the next day, Joe Manchin came out saying he's willing to do a deal. Uh, you know, uh, so he kind of laid out his terms for something that could be put into a reconciliation package uh, that would require, uh, you know, to the rollback of the Trump tax cuts, so some tax reform, saving some prescription drugs. And then he says that half that revenue would be split between reducing the deficit and inflation and then enacting new climate and, and social programs. But he is insisting that we would have to ramp up domestic energy production in light of what's going on in, with Russia and Ukraine, uh, including fossil fuels. Uh, so he would support you know, clean energy investments in a deal, but he wants domestic oil and gas and coal production to be part of the mix. Um, I, you know, so I won't get too excited that, that something's really going to happen here. I mean, Kristen Cinema has said she's opposed to... Um, tax hikes, especially the corporate tax hikes. Uh, and then Bernie Sanders, when asked about Manchin's proposal, said, I don't care what he says. Uh, House Democrats are saying that this would not uh, appease them. So uh, I think they're going to continue to drag this, uh, these, these things out under a different name, but I don't see them uh, as something that's going to that's pass. Um, just before we move on to Russia, Ukraine, anybody uh, have thoughts on the State of the Union and, and how you guys uh, interpreted it? Well, it was a bit of a non sequitur, I guess, is sort of what Mike is saying. Well, uh, you know, it starts off very, very strong on Ukraine, and then it sort of fades. And, and I suspect that after a while, a lot of people tuned out. Yeah, Vago, I mean, I agree with that. The Ukrainian uh, defense of Ukrainian uh, people um, standing up against Putin's war of aggression, rallying the world. Uh, all of that was a very strong bipartisan statement, I thought, from the president for the first fifth of the speech. And then after that, a much more, uh, you know, the political laundry list, if you will, the build back better without the name, uh, hoping to salvage it along the, the lines of what Michael's talking about. If Manchin comes aboard with some deal, can they put together some of those pieces? And ramping up domestic energy production sounds like a bipartisan winner to me, if you're talking about mainstream uh, parties, but who knows? Um, I will just note this on Asia. You know, of course, the Asians always want to hear more about themselves. Um, so the Japanese were grousing that there wasn't enough about China. There was just sort of the one sharp line about competition. Um, the Koreans were saying there was no mention of North Korea. But, you know, frankly, uh, my message to my Asian friends is, is that, look, uh, this is a, a domestic speech, first and foremost. It's the State of the Union. It's the legislative agenda. Um, it, there'll be plenty of time to talk about those other issues. And I'd just add to that, uh, I agree with everyone, uh, what they said, but my understanding was the 
State of the Union uh, address itself was because of all that was happening so quickly with Ukraine, Russia, that it really uh, was just, they pulled it out of the printer and gave it to them almost in terms of last minute changes up to the last minute. And I think that's kind of how it came across. It was, it was a bit, a bit uh, kind of put together at the last minute. And I, the only thing I would say is I'm glad to see him hewing now towards the center. I know he's caught some criticism for that, but it's about time. Uh, and so I was, I was glad, glad to see that. Otherwise, I, I think no one has been, is talking about it to this day. Let's um, move on to uh, Russia and uh, Ukraine. Uh, Jim, why don't you start us off as you've been starting us off. You're uh, teaching in uh, Paris at uh, one of uh, that uh, nation's great schools, Sciences Po. Uh, talk to us a little bit about where we are right now. Uh, extraordinary international pressure, uh, some extraordinary potential action in the United uh, Nations where the General Assembly may vote uh, to oust Russia from the uh, Security Council. Um, which is an unprecedented uh, move. Uh, where are we? Uh, where are we going? Um, and how do we need to think about where it is we're, we're going? Right. The administration keeps ratcheting up uh, pressure, as Dove said. Right. I mean, it, it is um, a concern to some that we continue to buy Russian energy. That's in part because I think the president and the administration feels boxed in. Republicans are already uh, getting even more shrill uh, the closer November gets about oil prices are going up and it's all Joe Biden's fault. Uh, you know, it, it's funny in some of the Republican talking points, you don't seem to hear that this might be Vladimir Putin's fault uh, or the fact that we've added trillions of dollars to the economy, uh, overheating it. We're doing well. And that's the disconnect between between, you know, too much money chasing too few goods and you get inflation. Um, you know, walk, walk us through where we are and, and what you're picking up uh, from uh, your friends in Paris and across Europe. Well, one thing that I'm picking up that's going to be a problem uh, for the administration and for NATO is that uh, as this conflict becomes more and more brutal and you're starting to see videos of so many civilians that are that are being killed in brutal ways, uh, you're seeing a this, uh, the shelling of the nuclear power plant, the largest in Europe. There's, there's things now that are just adding horror to this already nightmarish situation. And people are beginning to say, the administration's gotta do something. The Americans are gonna have to do something. NATO's gotta do something. You can't stand here and watch this happen and not do something. Uh, we can't just send humanitarian, we've got to do more. Uh, and there's pressure now uh, that, that NATO has to say something other than, well, Ukraine's not in NATO, so really we can't do anything but help all allies and we're sending forces to the alliance, et cetera, et cetera. Um, nations are starting to say, well, that's pretty lame. Uh, what are you gonna do? We're, we're just sitting here watching the blood flow. So I think we're gonna, I would hope at least in the West, in the US, uh, at NATO, at some of the other European countries, they're trying to think of other, other options to try to, to do more than just provide uh, humanitarian and and also uh, ammunition and, and military articles too, because there'll come a time as well when those uh, re the uh, resupply routes are gonna be cut potentially by Russian forces one way or another. Uh, and then what, what then? Uh, so I think we're gonna find ourselves having to look, look at maybe something like a coalition of the willing that's gonna do something. And I don't know exactly what that would be, uh, but I'm just trying to figure out what do you do? I mean, it's not a no-fly zone, but what more can we do uh, to try to have a, a hand in helping Ukraine in this? Uh, it, it's, it's, it's just, um, it's, it's, it's becoming 
very difficult now for the West to just stand aside and say, sorry, we, we, we can't help them other than give them equipment to help themselves. Um, and, then, and then finally, there are some squeaks coming out of Moscow, coming out of Putin about the sanctions. And uh, he's starting to make some kind of bizarre comments about, we don't mean any harm in Ukraine. <laughs> uh, the, you know, the sanctions should be lifted. So obviously he's feeling it, but uh, I don't know what he's going to do in reaction to them. Uh, I don't know if we're going to feel the cyber attacks and this kind of thing that he could very well levy on us. So, so I, think, um, I think on the one hand, he's feeling this now, not just the pressure from a, um, a military operation that's not going according to plan, but he's feeling the outcome of these, uh, of these sanctions too. And, it, and it's going to become very dangerous. Uh, and, uh, and, very, and, and we're going to be vulnerable to some, a lot of surprises. So frankly, uh, I feel more worried today when I woke up than I have been in the past. And certainly a lingering, lingering concern. I mean, look, I mean, I think the clearest thing to understand Vladimir Putin is sort of the thing you have to understand about Xi Jinping. Each one of these autocrats pretty much end up doing everything they say. We convince ourselves that they would never do it. Well, that's outrageous. I mean, they'd never do that. And yet they manage to consistently do that. Um, Dove, let me let me go to you in terms of uh, how you're seeing this, what you're hearing from, from your friends. We have a smart uh, array of people uh, who have um, a good track record of sort of thinking creatively and solving problems like this. I want to get your take and then Patrick want to get yours. Well, uh, over the last couple of days, I've been working with a group called the European Leadership Network, uh, which includes a lot of Russians, uh, to come out with a statement. And we did. Uh, you can get it on the ELN uh, website, uh, calling for unconditional ceasefire. An hour ago, one of those people uh, who reportedly actually has some contacts uh, at the senior uh, Russian government level, he himself runs one of the academies, uh, said, uh, and now I'm going to quote, because I think it's important that people hear what this guy wrote. The official Russian position, as I see it, implies that the, quote, special military operation. By the way, Putin arrests people who call it a war. You are not allowed to call it a war. Um, should proceed till its goals are fully met, which is a little different from what Jim is hearing. Therefore, the call for an unconditional ceasefire is already a deviation from the Kremlin's line. So uh, at least this guy, who certainly is well informed, uh, seems to think that Putin hasn't changed his mind at all. Patrick, uh, you're, you know, and I, and I want to get uh, to the General Assembly uh, and the Chinese, or maybe let's take this as an opportunity to uh, go there. Um, you know, some extraordinary potential international action. European Union uh, has voted uh, in the last week uh, to uh, allow Ukraine to begin an accession process in, you know, listening to uh, Zelensky's extremely moving speech, right? I mean, reports that the interpreter broke down, as we heard uh, during that, and an extraordinary vote. Where, where are we, Patrick? How are the Chinese behaving in this context? And then any thoughts on, on what um, the administration, the West, uh, our allies and partners in this that include Japan and Australia uh, and and South Korea, uh, Singapore, in fact, in terms of restraining technology, Taiwan, uh, need, need, need to be doing about it potentially differently than we're doing it now. Well, Vago, Putin is isolated uh, in 
um, not just NATO, uh, but in much of Asia. The big exceptions uh, continue to be um, China, first and foremost, because China's complicity um, is, is arguable in the sense that uh, they did sign into a major joint statement just before this invasion, this no limits agreement. And while they may be uncomfortable with, with what they're having to face now, China, um, you know, the CCP party is a party of no regrets. Uh, they're just trying to cover themselves. So they've got the state media this week, you know, even today, uh, accusing the United States of instigating this tension by wanting NATO expansion in the 90s. It's just a misreading of recent history. Um, but it's the, it's the Putin propaganda line that the state media is repeating in China. Um, they want to deflect blame and avoid responsibility for their own role. And while they're abstaining from some of these international votes at the UN General Assembly and the UN Human Rights Commission, uh, which have condemned Putin's aggression, um, you know, they, they really are just trying to deflect blame. They don't want to isolate their strategic partner, Russia, because they largely agree with the agenda. They just don't agree with the means and, and, and necessarily how the, those means are going because, uh, because Putin is, is showing the limits of military force. His Russian military uh, definitely is showing, um, you know, lack of planning, logistics issues. Uh, reminds me of Clausewitz's comment of, uh, you know, his, his line that everything in war is very simple, but the simplest thing is difficult. And, and Putin's uh, aggression should be cautioned to the PLA as, if they think about, and they, as they do plan for possibly seizing Taiwan or other parts of Asia in the future, um, their untested military is going to run into this reality too, that the simplest thing in war is very difficult. So they better think twice and that's what Asian leaders are thinking about. How do we strengthen deterrence? Um, and Japan's talking about increasing defense spending. They can't go as quickly as Germany, but they're going up. The Koreans are about to elect a conservative president who will want to increase defense spending more. Um, the Quad countries, even India, which has been sitting on the fence with its Russia partner, you know, had a leaders uh, summit uh, discussion with President Biden in the last 24 hours and agreed that there can be no unilateral change to the status quo in the Pacific as what we've seen in, in Europe here. So at least the Asian uh, allies and partners are starting to be uh, stronger and unified and understand this is going to take defense and hard power, not just economic power. Um, I, I wanted to point out, right, I mean, this sort of unusual uh, Chinese position, right? Uh, you shared a tweet with us uh, from uh, the Chinese embassy in Moscow with a B-52 and a long list of the military actions the United States has engaged in since uh, World War II, uh, starting with the Korean War, and, and noting, you know, who's the aggressor uh, in, in this case, right? The United States uh, or, uh, or uh, Russia, which I thought was sort of an interesting uh, message to send. Any, any additional messaging about on how angry Chinese leaders actually are at Vladimir Putin, because every indication I have is that they're very unhappy because Putin has given the world an example to get together and template actions that would then be applied to China, right? So in a sense, we've tipped our hand. On the other hand, we've, we've shown them how terrifying the response could be. Well, Vaga, you hinted earlier about uh, autocracies. Things can go bad uh, very quickly. Um, because decisions are made at the top. And, and Xi Jinping is not canvassing 1.4 billion Chinese to see what they think about it, to know what he does next. Um, so there are a lot of people out of the loop, if you will, 
uh, in China. And yes, there are people who, in China who are upset. There are protests. There are people who are very concerned about the economic repercussions, about uh, the repercussions in Asia aligning against China's interests. And no doubt, at the very highest level around uh, the Politburo of China and the Communist Party leadership, there is a lot of nail-biting uh, and anger toward Putin and how he is executing uh, his his plan. Because if this is the plan, you know, going according to plan, as Putin has said, um, the Chinese certainly weren't read in on those details. I think they just knew that uh, Putin meant business and was going to uh, seize part of Ukraine, but I think, and maybe install a leader, but try to do it very quickly and easily. Uh, there'd be no fuss and it'd be over in a day. Um, you know, that's not how this is going. And the Chinese have now inherited that and they cannot acknowledge mistakes. So that's the problem with the Chinese system. You can not, there's no safety valve for acknowledging mistakes, but you can be sure inside, uh, you know, uh, Beijing, they are talking about mistakes. Michael, I want to bring you uh, into this um, and sort of get a, a hill's eye perspective of, of where we are and whether any lawmakers actually have something constructive to add to this. I know Adam Kinzinger has discussed uh, the, the prospect of uh, creating a no-fly zone. I think there are all sorts of challenges on this. I mean, I suppose the best way to do that would be European Union accelerates Ukrainian accession becomes part of the EU. At the same time, uh, the United States and its allies engineer a general assembly vote that you know gets uh, the Russian voice off the Security Council and then approves a no-fly zone. Right? I mean, I'm just trying to look at creative mechanics here. Um, you know, I mean, we're already in an uncharted territory. That would certainly send a very powerful message. Uh, and indeed, right? I mean, part of Chinese strategy has been to work with countries all around the world to get as much support in the general assembly for this sort of thing in the event that uh, folks folks want to punish them. Are there any Republicans or Democrats or anybody on the Hill who've got some, some um, more thoughtful uh, potential ways of addressing this crisis? Yes and no. Like, I, I think in a time like this, uh, both, uh, and I said before, uh, both parties, I think, need to be very supportive of, the, of their commander in chief. And it's very easy to shout these ideas uh, from the chief seats, but many times they're not, they're not helpful or productive. Um, I do think that what's been, in my opinion, what's been most helpful is uh, Congressman Adam Smith, who's chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, <clears throat> has come out publicly saying that without question, uh, defense budgets are going to have to be bigger than we thought. Uh, so it's showing a, a, a recognition on the Democratic side, that um, you know the, the world is much more dangerous than just China, and that we have uh, global threats and global obligations and global responsibilities, and I think that you'll see defense spending go up dramatically next year with bipartisan support on the Hill. That we won't see uh, the fights that we had this year. I mean, the numbers we're talking about now are a budget request that I think will be insufficient at about 770. Uh, and that the House Democrats and Republicans are talking about increasing that to at least 814 uh, billion dollars. Um, but again, I think you know uh, uh, it's it's it, the administration's privy to more information. I, I personally, based on my experience in national security, think no fly, uh, no fly zone is is a is a bad idea. Uh, I think we need to do everything we can to avoid a shooting war between NATO and Russia, but continue to do what we can to support uh, the Ukrainian people and support freedom. Uh, but it also means that the president is right to be asking for money now to be shoring up NATO, redeploying troops and, and armor. But that's also going to require a lot of time and a lot more money. And like I've said last week, it will require us to increase our end strength to redeploy uh, forces to Europe, which I think are desperately needed there to shore up NATO. 
Uh, Jim, you're in Paris uh, in, at a time when Germany has done for many people uh, the unthinkable, uh, not just commit $100 billion uh, to national security, uh, but also uh, Olaf Scholz, uh, you know, told uh, the, the Bundestag uh, last Sunday uh, that we're going to Germany, Berlin will also meet its 2% uh, NATO uh, commitment. Uh, looks like a whole series of uh, weapon programs are being accelerated. Uh, it is seen as almost a certitude uh, that the that Germany will buy F-35s, for example. That solves their nuclear problem, gives them a cutting edge fighter. Um, you know, how 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 is this playing out? How important was the German decision? And and does that change anybody's calculus? Uh, on the continent, because Europeans have been sort of of mixed mind. On the one hand, they want Germans to do more. On the other hand, there's always this, um, I think, misplaced uh, sense that a you know rearmed, strong Germany is problematic. Germany's the world's number three economy. Okay, guys. I mean, it's it is it is in the first rank anyway. Um, how 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 is this playing out? Well, a lot of my German friends have said, uh, look, uh, what Schulz said to the Bundestag when he gave the speech. He surprised his own coalition. This wasn't like it was something that was discussed, discussed by the entire coalition. Uh, some of the senior members had no idea he was going to say what he did. Uh, and so they have cautioned me saying, look, OK, that's great. This is those of us, those few here in Berlin and Germany that really focus on defense and security. We're all happy to hear that. But there's a lot more work that has to be done to actually lock that in and make it happen in terms of a budget. Uh, and so the, the point made to me uh, is that we've got to really keep pressure on Germany not to backtrack on this. Uh, you know, if Putin disappears tomorrow or if things, uh, in fact, to get much better, which we hope they do, will the Germans keep to that pledge? Uh, and even if things get worse and worse, how quickly can they actually lock in this money and what will they spend it on? You mentioned the F-35, but that's not even a sure thing. They're still doing their aircraft review and, and it's a complex one. So so we're not sure uh, exactly, we're all happy, but we're not sure how this is gonna play out. We're watching. Um, and I think it's up to all of us to make sure that, uh, um, that the Germans hold to it. Uh, we need the Germans to be the, the engine of, of rearming here. Um, and a lot of it, you mentioned the sentiment that some are, are afraid of a rearmed Germany. I think back in, back in the, the mists of time, you know, that would mean something. And frankly, today in Moscow, that kind of alarm of a rearming Germany isn't something that is passed over without notice uh, among Putin and those others. That's a special, that's a special uh, ring to it in, in, in the Kremlin. So, but I think, um, I, I think Europe is welcoming this. I think Europe needs this. I think Europe knows that they need Germany to, to play this more important role. But this coalition is a new coalition uh, and the Greens are in it as well as the SPD, I mean, there's a, um, this is a left of center group. And so hats off to Schultz for saying something that needed to be said, said. And I think he's getting kudos for taking a very brave stand politically. But there's a, a lot of others who are saying, you know, show me the money <laughs> to, to make sure that in fact Germany comes through with it. But it was historic. And I think, I think right now, just to finish up, I would just applaud the history of it, but let's keep their feet to the fire. 
Um, I would I would like to point out that any neuralgia about Germany uh, should be laid to rest. During the Cold War, Germany was an important ally, an important partner. Uh, it had an awesome military capability that was exercised and actually good, uh, allowed the forward basing of American nuclear weapons. And indeed, uh, you know, the, the nuclear deterrent element of it remains important to Germans. Uh, so I think that this is an issue for only somebody who wants to try to find a contrived reason uh, to make it an issue. Uh, Germany right. is not building an army to move right. on France and cross the Rhine again, uh, and right. and I, or or move over into into Poland, uh, you know, for you know Lebensraum reasons. Uh, so well, I, well, I find well, it. Well, Wagner, just to jump in, you're absolutely right that there are some Germans who I I personally have had discussions with them, and they will say, "Well, look, Jim, you're putting so much pressure on us." If you ask other Europeans, they don't want us to do it. And it's like, no, you're wrong. They do want you to do it. And so you're absolutely right to raise this because a lot of times I think some in Germany use that as an excuse why they don't want to spend more money on defense. Um, I would also like to put, put, uh, explain to people that with the end of the Cold War uh, and the, the uh, unification of Germany, uh, reunification of Germany, um, the, the extraordinary resources uh, that Bonn and then Berlin had to pour into uh, the, the east of the country to bring it up. Part of it was to be able to uh, take that money that was being invested by Germany in its security and, and moving it and spending it in a way. And I mean, those, those bills didn't get finished until just a couple of years ago. And, and there's still a drive. You know, and in fact, there's opposite resentment now. The east part of the country looks better than the western part of right. the country. Uh, which is which is a, a bit of a a, a, a bit of a, a frust, uh, frustration, but you know, Patrick, uh, I want to go to you uh, and ask you uh, both the nuclear dimensions of this uh, crisis uh, and and also how differently we have to deal with the Chinese as a follow up question than that. But let's talk about you know, Putin did nuclear saber rattling, then he uh, does an attack on uh, Europe's largest uh, power plant, uh, which is in Ukraine. You know, anytime shells are landing on a nuclear power plant, there's always a lot of concern, but it plays into European uh, nuclear fears. Uh, there is still a worry that he will do some sort of uh, tactical demonstration, uh, whether closer to the European border, whether up at sea or even in Central Asia, uh, in which case, right, when we would retaliate, where, where do we do a test to indicate that we're as willing to do something as he is, uh, as awful as that sounds? How, do, how are you thinking through the nuclear component of this? And how do we need to think about it? Um, I asked this question of Frank Kendall uh, yesterday, the Air, uh, Air Force Secretary, uh, you know, since that he is from a Cold War generation that used to spend a lot of time uh, thinking through uh, nuclear uh, issues. Um, you know, give us, give us your sense on how it is that we need to navigate this so that we're actually not deterred and end up in some manner rewarding Putin, right? I mean, he's shaking that saber as loud as he can to get us to step down. He is. He's trying to intimidate uh, NATO and others from intervening against his aggression. But at the same time, he is shaking our assumptions about deterrence and escalation. And he's done this in a, in a matter of a couple of weeks. Now, it's true that Russian doctrine always included the idea of limited nuclear strikes, uh, well short of anything that the United States would contemplate, which would be nuclear retaliation as, as a last resort. Um, he is um, encouraging the second nuclear uh, age, uh, especially in Asia, where you did have former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe talk about housing U.S. nuclear troops. 
our nuclear weapons. Um, Prime Minister Kishida shot that down immediately under withering criticism from the Chinese um, and said, we're not co contemplating that. But then Abe came back and said, you know, the genie is out of the bottle. We need to understand how security is maintained around the world and consider, you know, not consider taboo to talk about this. And that's that discussion is going to grow in Japan, even if they're not going to move quickly on nuclear weapons. Korea is more likely to move quickly. And with the new conservative government coming in, most likely in this next week's election, I think that's what we'll see. So I think the idea that uh, nuclear proliferation in the, um, you know, among allies is a more open question, frankly, because they're looking for hard security. And meanwhile, Putin has blurred the lines between conventional and nuclear and between gray zone and, and conventional use of force. And uh, if you're going to blur all of those and there's no clear lines, then you better give me the surest insurance policy possible. And by the way, who has that in, in Northeast Asia? Uh, North Korea in spades, and they're not stopping. I, I think it's fascinating that um, anybody would be surprised when you push Japan as hard as North Korea and China are pushing it and make the assumption that a nation that developed a nuclear capability in the 1970s, put together a bomb, dismantled it and put it in the basement, have developed cutting edge space program uh, that coincidentally could also be used to deliver a warhead somewhere would would somehow be surprised that if you push Japan too far, it may consider developing its own nuclear deterrent. Um, I, I find that like, kind of laughable, actually. You're right. Japan's had the sinews of an ICBM since the 1990s, and it's only gotten better. Um, Dove, I, I want to bring you uh, into this. I want to have a, another brief uh, China uh, discussion because this, whatever whatever we're doing to Russia is in part applicable to China, but not directly so. It's not necessarily a total template. But uh, Dove, I want to give you a moment to, to chime in and then sort of get your guys' thoughts on what's similar and what's not in the five or so minutes we've got left in the program. Go ahead, Dove. Well, first of all, uh the Chinese clearly see that uh, since they're far more integrated into the international economic community than Russia is, the price they would pay for anything against Taiwan, assuming that the world would see an attack on Taiwan the way it sees an attack on Ukraine. That's not clear, by the way. Uh, but if they did, then China's got a problem. And, and the Chinese, at the end of the day, they push the envelope, but Patrick, correct me, but they tend to be risk averse in going far. They yeah, would very much so. You're right. Can't see them doing what Putin is doing, and so the risk that their economy could tank, as it is, it's it's not strong as as we've talked about on this program many times. Uh, I think it's it's a certain warning message to the uh, to the Chinese, and and one thing that's very important um, that. It's that the, the world's reaction to this um, shows that everything is interconnected. So, for example, the Ukrainians are probably asking themselves, if we kept a nuclear weapon, would all of this happen? Um, the North Koreans are probably telling themselves that's precisely why we have a nuclear weapon, which brings us to the Iranian deal, which they say is days away, except the Iranians either are going to tell themselves we're going to cheat again or they're going to not go through the deal because they will tell themselves, look, we don't want to be another Ukraine. The uh, Bahraini leadership is in town this week, the crown prince, the prime minister, the foreign minister. And it's clear that 
there's a lot of nervousness in the Gulf because they're worried about a deal. But again, what is deal really going to mean? And uh, will, and since it's not going to include anything that really worries the Gulfies and the Israelis, namely the missiles and the uh, trouble that uh, Iran is continuing to cause, uh, the United States didn't exactly respond overwhelmingly when the UAE was hit by missiles coming out of Yemen, uh, and which it blamed Iran for. Uh, it's clear that every country is now looking over its shoulder at what's going on in Ukraine, and they're drawing different conclusions. Uh, I wrote this morning, you know, why did the Indians abstain in the General, uh, General Assembly vote? The reason is simple. They are still committed to non, uh, to, to uh, not being part of any group, right? The, uh, the non-aligned. The, non, the non-aligned movement, correct. They've been there for 75 years and 60% of their equipment comes from Russia. So they're playing both sides. I, I think we really need to be very, very precise about how we intend to go about dealing with each country because every one of them is different. You know, Dove, it's interesting. The alignment is op- uh, you know, up for grabs right now, though, in terms of how countries are shifting the positions. I, I note that the Korean chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff is, is in Riyadh right now. Um, that's an unusual meeting um, in terms of Korea trying to in- enhance its defense ties with Saudi Arabia, maybe because of the energy concerns. Um, so uh, India presumably has to worry about how is it going to gain the parts and, and keep its weapon systems together, like the S-400 system, um, you know, air defense system, as sanctions uh, isolate uh, Putin's regime. Uh, so these are you know, difficult questions that are going to be uh, uh, for each country, how they're going to deal with Russia going forward. They're going to have to wean themselves off of Russia, just as they, we're trying to wean ourselves off of Chinese technology. Um, just, just as I uh, bring this home uh, in, in uh, one minute for each of you, uh, Michael, any particularly thoughtful member thinking uh, on uh, what this means uh, for China? And uh, Jim, uh, wrap us up today how Europeans are looking at this vis-a-vis China, because I think that it's extraordinary that in the rhetoric, whether it's coming out of Paris, whether it's coming out of Brussels, uh, Berlin, or anywhere else, folks are making that implicit link, right? It's not just Americans saying, we have to stand here in order to avoid Taiwan, but we need to, it, it's, it, you know what I mean? It, they're not avoiding the point, they're making that uh, connection. Michael, you, and then Jim, uh, wrap us up. Yeah, look, I think, again, a lot of this, uh, the thoughtful members have come out on this. Um, it's been bipartisan. I think Mike Rogers has made some very thoughtful statements on it. Mike Gallagher uh, has as well. Uh, I think Adam Smith. Uh, you know, people do see uh, the, the the connection, uh, and but but at the same time, you know, I mean, we've talked about this before. I mean, people do recognize that, it, that Taiwan presents challenges uh, that the Ukraine doesn't. I mean, because we are much more economically linked with the Chinese than, than we are uh, with, with the Russians. But they do feel that we need to send a strong signal to make the Chinese uh, think twice. So I do think that most people on the Hill right now have been pretty unified on that. I just want to take an opportunity to point out that Mike Gallagher is going to be on our Cavus Ships uh, podcast uh, today. So everybody should tune into that because he is a very thoughtful uh, and insightful uh, member. Jim, uh, bring it home. Well, just I'll just say a couple things. One is I think in terms of China and how Europe uh, and Europeans are looking on, you know, the, the China that we were all talking about a year ago, including them, 
what's happened in U- Ukraine and with Russia has totally overwhelmed any other thoughts uh, or any, any bandwidth in Europe that's, uh, that's, that would otherwise go talking about China. I, you don't hear them talking much about China. It's all about Russia. It's all about Ukraine. It's all about refugees. It's all about the economy. It's totally overwhelming fought, fought over here. I don't think there's something new on China. And just to, just to add to that point, we keep your eye on Sweden and Finland. <laughs> and I say that because uh, I, it was just released a photo of um, the, the Finnish president meeting with Bill Burns at the CIA. Um, and so uh, he's in town and obviously, and, uh, or, or, or maybe Bill is in Helsinki, but uh, uh, there was an emergency meeting of foreign ministers today. I don't know if Sweden and Finland were on the agenda, but they were in the room. Uh, and so uh, there's just a lot of noise coming out of particularly Helsinki about uh, NATO membership, poll results, political party uh, poll results as well, where the various parties are in Sweden and Finland. I, I you know, I, I've worked with them for decades, so I'm not going to sit here and say they're going to join. But boy, I have not seen such movement and such discussion about NATO membership in a uh, forever. I've never seen it like this. So let's just see what happens. If they were to join, what a sign that would be of European unity in terms of, of Putin. And in terms of being a, a brave move, you know, I think the uh, Swedes had their uh, airspace violated over Gotland Island by some Russian aircraft yesterday or day before. So the Russians are paying attention up there too. And if they, uh, if these two nations do join NATO, you can hear a lot of guff coming out of Moscow and probably some military maneuvers too. It's either pay now or pay more later. Invest yeah. now in deterrence. Almost almost everybody has concluded that the right number for us to spend in terms of more sustained over the next couple of years to build the capabilities, Michael, is the point you make in terms of whether or not the extra manpower we need, whether or not it's the delivering of capabilities, hypersonic and otherwise. If we step this up quickly and start fielding capability, the 2027 date, the Chinese may calculate that this is not what they want to do. And I think that the, the more we drag our feet, the less clear the signals we send. And also we're showing will. We're showing will in terms of standing up to Putin. Bottle the will, capability and will inc- uh, equals deterrence. The minute you see either of those flag, it's completely problematic. Any, any last thoughts as, yeah. we, as we part? Vago, on that theme, uh, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo in Taiwan this week called for the recognition of Taiwan as a free country, um, calling into question essentially our one China policy. I don't think we're going to go that far, but I think we're going to trend in that direction. Uh, recall someone like Richard Haas writing late last year about the need for strategic clarity where we would still cling to a one China policy myth, but at the same time, we would be acknowledging that we are going to defend Taiwan if attacked. And I think that uh, debate, even short of military spending, is going to lead to more political uh, and foreign policy repercussions uh, in this year ahead. I could just add to that the visit this week of Michelle Hornoy and especially Mike Mullen and Megan O'Sullivan to Taiwan. Uh, that sends a message as well. Michelle has clearly talked about as potential de- Secretary of Defense. Megan O'Sullivan uh, has already been a deputy national security advisor and will probably be something more senior someday. Mike Mullen may be the most respected of all the contemporary chairman of the Joint Chiefs. So when those people show up in Taiwan to uh, reinforce what uh, Patrick was just talking about, Beijing notices. So yes, uh, I, I totally agree that 
we're seeing movement here that frankly, I haven't seen in my professional life before when it came to Taiwan. Couldn't agree with you more, Dove. Uh, and it does send uh, a very, very powerful signal. And again, right, Patrick, um, I think there's a lot to be said uh, for uh, the United States recognizing and, and saying uh, what, what the president has intimated on two separate occasions. The United States will fight for Taiwan. Uh, and uh, they, the Chinese, and the problem here is, right, the Chinese are convinced that we have convinced themselves that we won't. And so in, in this uh, relationship, right, removing that ambiguity might actually be something that is stabilizing, right? And the next time President Biden says that, I think the White House won't be able to walk him back. Guys, uh, thanks very much. Terrific conversation as always. Uh, very much appreciated. Jim, thanks for staying up uh, for us uh, uh, today on a, on a nice Friday uh, in, in, in Paris uh, in March. Uh, and look forward to having you all back uh, next week. Have a great weekend, great week, uh, and look forward to our next conversation. All the best to you all. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.